Hello, friends. It is Mr. Gratitude, and this is the Living with Gratitude podcast, episode three. Today, I have a special guest, Dr. Anna Trubo. She's a clinical psychologist. You will love her. I love her. We're going to be taking all of your mental health questions today. So sit back, grab a drink, grab some snacks. Here we go. All right. Hello and welcome. All right, ladies and gents, I do have a special treat for you. I do have Dr. Anna Trebo with us. She is a clinical psychologist. She's going to answer some of the mental health questions that you guys have asked me. She's going to fill in the gaps of some professional aspects that I couldn't answer for you, or maybe that I felt she would have a better answer for you. So without further ado, welcome, Dr. Anna Trebo. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Fando, for having me. I, I really enjoy uh, your TikTok and Instagram page, so I'm a fan as well, and, and I'm happy that we're collaborating on this. As am I. I've been excited about this for a few weeks now, ever since you agreed to be on the show. Uh, I do have some questions. These are some top questions that uh, a lot of the fans will ask me uh, during my live sessions or during content. I, I respect and honor who you are greatly. I love your content. I love your views on some of the mental health aspects. One of the top questions I get that, that I wanted to ask is in regards to in this day and age in the dating world, we have a lot of folks that like the manipulation game. They think that the cat and mouse chasing, manipulating, if I walk away, this person's going to come back and be super attracted to me. What are your thoughts on that? I think that doing that um, is not genuine to who you are. It's not an authentic thing because, like you said, you're playing a game. Um, and I don't think that that is necessarily going to be healthy for the relationship. In fact, I think it probably won't be. And you're just generating like a bad habit um, that I think can ultimately destroy your chances with this person. And if you feel like the person's not interested enough uh, and, you're ha and you're like forced to play this game or to manipulate, then maybe it's not the right person for you. I think in this day and age, we ha sometimes have difficulty letting go of those people that are just not, it's just not going to work. Uh, we tend to cling to certain people uh, stubbornly, like this has to work and, and it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily going to work. Correct. Correct. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And that is a lot of the, you know, in, in content, I explain the same thing in my you know, you've, you've heard me say it before is you can never say the wrong thing to the right person. If, if the energy's there and you're aligned, that is something that you need to go with because it's something that doesn't happen every day. You shouldn't have to uh, have somebody walk out of your life for them to walk back. If they go, let them go. And it seems like you and I are on the same page there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that it, it should be enough to be our, your authentic self without having to play games for this person to be interested. What do you think on a psychological level, um, since that is your expertise, why, why do you feel that individuals do that? Do you feel it's a security issue? Do you feel it's the lack of self-worth? Do you feel that they're, they're maybe putting themselves on a pedestal? What's your opinion on that? So I think it's a mix of things, uh, just as you described. I think there is a, a, there's a piece of uh, lack of self-worth and, and self-love. 
I also think um, another piece is uh, the attachment style. So people with insecure attachment style tend to play these games more uh, or think that this is going to work like this sort of manipulation. And it's because they don't have, again, since they have low self-worth, a lot of times what they're seeking through their relationships is validation that they don't give themselves. So they don't feel that they're enough and they need that external validation from other people to feel that they're they're worthy, that they, that they are valuable. Um, and the problem with this is that you tend to have uh, an anxious attachment style with the people that you meet. So you tend to cling to people that are not good for you just because you don't want to be abandoned. And you don't even love them, maybe. It's just really wanting that validation and, and, and this person to tell you that you're worthy, that you're worth it, um, instead of letting go of those people that are just, you know, not good. So I think, yeah, deep down, it's it's a, it's a problem with attachment style. And, and was sadly, you know, with attachment style, it really has to do with your upbringing. The type of relationship that you had with your parents a lot of times determine how you're going to interact with romantic partners as adult, as an adult. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I know I had mentioned something in your, some of your content that you had up. It, it kind of ties into that about attachment style. I'm a huge fan of the way that you presented that. Um, and I agree with you as well. We're definitely on the same page in regards to the, um, the, the way you grow up, the home that you grow up in, your attachment style. So that's definitely in line um, with some of the things that I consult on. So that's awesome to hear from you, you being the professional. Uh, I love that we're on the same page there. So thank you for that feedback. All right. Well, and I, I appreciate your, your feedback on the cat and mouse one. Now this next one, you know, I, I typically will talk about the things in my content that everybody thinks about that is taboo and that people want to shy away from, but I like to face those things head on. You know, I don't sugarcoat kind of a darker topic, but let's shine some light on it, especially since we just had worldwide suicide, suicide prevention month. I wanted to dive into why I know Right now in 2020, we've been affected by a lot from COVID to wildfires, to racial tensions, to unprecedented violence, and also unprecedented rates of suicide. What in your professional opinion, what do you think is the driving force behind this? Is it world events? Do you think there's a shift inside? Like, what, what is your opinion on that? I really would love to know, and I know a lot of my fans want to know what is going on. So I think, yeah, I think this is a very important topic. One of the risk factors for suicide is isolation. And I do think with the pandemic, especially, um, the level of, you know, social distancing and, and the, the length of time that we had to quarantine, for a lot of people, what it created was a perfect storm um, for suicide. And I work at McLean Hospital, uh, and I see a lot of patients there that are in the inpatient unit hospitalized for these reasons. And COVID did create the perfect storm for a lot of people. So a lot of people depended on their jobs, going out, seeing friends to keep that structure and that wellness for their mental health. Like if you were, if you don't do anything during an entire day and then, you know, the next day you don't do anything and you're just at home, you don't talk to anybody, you, you're just totally isolated. Without the structure, it can create a huge storm of negative thoughts and emotions that can come on. I don't know if any 
any of our listeners have experienced this, but if you've ever stayed in pajamas the entire day and just watched TV and did nothing, you're going to have a lot more negative thoughts than if you went out and went about your day and were super busy and did tons of things because structure helps us um, not fall into these pits of negative thoughts. When you have a lot of time on your hands, it's a lot easier for negative thoughts to kind of set in. Um, So for people that are vulnerable and that have more depressive tendencies, COVID really created a perfect storm because suddenly you don't have the structure that you had before. You don't have the social contact that's so important. Like socializing is very, very important for people that suffer from mental um, mental illness. So when you lose those two things, it, it can be just, you know, the perfect ingredients to create um, a situation where you might feel like you, you're hopeless and, and you want to take your life um, or you want to self-harm. So I think it's very important for all of you that are listening to, to take into account how important it is to have structure to talk to people, even if it's via Zoom or, you know, out in the patio where you can keep social distance, but to, to be able to do that is, is so very important. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I know it's tough to address that, but like you said, it does need to be addressed. And the problem is, is more people are not sitting like you and I are and addressing it. And that needs to happen. And Absolutely. What, what I always tell my fan base, my followers, however you want to verbalize that is just listen and I'm sure you can attest to this is that nine times out of ten if somebody is that close to the brink of wanting to take their life they just want to be heard if you just take five minutes and listen to them you don't even need to give them an answer but just listen to them nine times out of ten that alleviates them in that moment from wanting to take their life and um, I think uh, you're absolutely right if you know ideally obviously they would talk to their therapist or psychologist but if you're in close contact with someone that is expressing uh, suicidal ideation or even has a plan, it's so very important, like you said, Renan, to take that time to listen to what they're experiencing, to what they're feeling, because you really can, in a way, um, talk them out of it. Um, of course, you know, I think it's daunting for anybody, and I would obviously recommend first talking to a therapist um, if you can contact their psychiatrist or psychologist, but. If you're in a situation where it's hard to do that, just being there with the person can already be so much help and support. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And I, I, I really appreciate the professional side and I know my listeners are appreciating that as well because, you know, I, I, I kind of joke and I, and I use the word joke, but the cabin fever, I mean, the cabin fever ties into this. It's very real and it touches back to what you said, isolation, Um, rather said person is a spiritual person or not, but that goes back to the old saying of idle hands is the devil's playground because it's absolutely right. You you know, being isolated is the absolute worst thing we can do as humans. We thrive on that interaction. And, uh, if we're in negative surroundings and we're sitting there, like you said, with the pajamas, just completely stuck in our thoughts, nothing positive can come out of that. Um, you have environments and situations for positive thinking where you actually, you know, have the thoughts for invention and, and have the thoughts for creation, but that is a completely different environment. So I wanted to make sure that we, you know, touch base a little bit more on that. Um, and what do you think in regards to moving forward? If somebody is feeling just so down in that darkness and they are down in, in that deep in depression and they can't reach their mental health professional at the time what are what are some of your suggestions and advice to maybe snap yourself out of that if you don't have anybody that's going to grab your hand yeah that's an excellent question so i think for a lot of folks i think what would be important is to reach out to someone they know friends family 
I know for a lot of family members and friends, sometimes even asking about suicidal ideation is difficult, but it's very important. There's a lot of research to suggest that when you ask someone that has suicidal ideation, if they're having those thoughts, it can already be like a, a big deterrent because they start talking, like you said, Brendan, they start talking, you start listening, and it creates that support. If they're not able to contact someone, I think the other important piece is try to keep busy and do activities. I know it sounds bizarre to ask someone that's suicidal um, to, you know, clean their house or something like that, um, but keeping distracted and keeping busy yeah. can help alleviate that. Going, taking a walk, you know, outside, you know, putting, you know, uh, splashing your face with cold water, holding ice. I know. It sounds bizarre, but sometimes it helps you just kind of snap out of that like moment where you're gonna, you feel like you're gonna be impulsive uh, and do something that, you know, um, there's more in the heat of the moment than what you, with more time and with more support, you probably wouldn't be at that, you know, at that level of hopelessness. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, that kind of leans into the next part of this. The second segment is, is what I always tell um, during consulting and coaching sessions is people, places, and things will either elevate you or destroy you. So it sounds like what we're talking about now ties right into that um, to make sure that people are aware of the people, places, and things around them. Yeah. And you know, I think what you're describing is perfect because ideally if you have, if you're vulnerable and you've had these t- sorts of thoughts before you, or you've had a suicide attempt before, it's so important either with your therapist or, or just by yourself to create some sort of plan. Like you said, people, places, um, things that elevate you, that help you in those moments. Um, if you're spiritual, it can be going to church, reaching out to some member of your community. Um, if you're in AA, it could be your sponsor, like anybody that you feel like elevates you, that helps you, that inspires you in those moments can be a great resource. All right, so now on to a little bit lighter of topics here. I I like to have fun with this because I do know some exercises when I do consulting and coaching. There's a lot of really fun exercises out there. I know it sounds bizarre to tie in fun with anxiety, but there's some exercises you can do to help alleviate anxiety. I know you have some great things. You and I have discussed it before. So what are some of your tips and tricks in the moment with battling anxiety? Right. So I think one of the important things when you're battling anxiety is to try to take a moment and really observe the thoughts that are coming into your mind. We call them automatic negative thoughts. These are things that just kind of pop into your mind and they have this snowball effect. So you can start with a thought like, um, I haven't filed my taxes, you know, this is a big problem. And then you kind of feed into that thought. What am I going to do? You know, if I don't get it on time, da, 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 da. And the problem with that is that you're suddenly in like the storm of anxiety. So recognizing when that first thought comes in and saying, oh, see, I have a negative thought. My anxiety is, you know, kicking in now. So just recognizing, you know, I'm having this negative thought and not engaging with it. So it's almost like your mind were a frying pan, right? That's made out of Teflon. So you don't let anything stick you know, to the frying pan. You just kind of let it slide off. You don't let any of those thoughts stink. 
Because if you let them stick and you feed into them, then, you know, it becomes a snowball and your anxiety just, you know, goes out of control. I love that. The other... Yeah, I think, you know, identifying your negative thoughts is so important because sometimes what we do is we take them as a fact. So, for example, if your boss comes up to you and says, we need to talk, we're having a meeting at 3 p.m. For a lot of people, the first thought that comes to their mind is, I'm going to get fired. Um, and I think that you just take that thought as, as, as if it were a fact instead of thinking, okay, well, that could happen, but there are alternatives. Like, that's not... My, I can't mind read, right? And I can't predict the future. So, but my anxiety tries to convince me that no, in fact, you're getting fired. That's why your boss wants to talk to you at 3 p.m. But that's, I can't know that. So I think it's important to be able to recognize when your anxiety is just giving you these thoughts and opinions that are just thoughts. They're not reality. They're not a fact. Um, and so it's important to treat them as such instead of treating, treating them as, as if they were facts. Um, and having that more of a balance, right? We tend to pay attention to our negative thoughts a lot more than we do our more neutral or positive thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we're, we're on the same page there too. I love the way and the analogy you used about the Teflon. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the way I presented as well is you don't camp with, the, with, with anxiety. You just say hi to it and you work through it and you push it out. You want to always acknowledge it and recognize it because it's, as you agreed, it's not healthy to suppress and repress that emotion. And I think in our modern society, so many people are quick to shut you down and say, no, 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 don't feel that way. You can't feel that way. When you and I know it's okay to not be okay and to recognize that emotion and work through it. Yeah, and Brendan, what you just described is actually the best way to handle anxiety, really. Um, and like you said, I think as a society and our upbringing, a lot of times they make us think that, you know, feeling anxious is like, being too vulnerable, being too sensitive or weakness. And really what this creates is the sensation that I shouldn't be feeling anxiety. When I'm anxious, I should be calm. And like you said, you want to try to suppress it. You want to repress it. You want to shut it down. You want to feel calm. When in reality, what you should do is just allow it to be there. Like you said, I, I thought that was perfect. Say hi to it. Allow it to be there. And eventually it's going to go away. Because if you try to suppress it and you fight the anxiety, all you create is anxiety about anxiety. So you start being anxious about being anxious and that just increases the level of anxiety to a whole new level. On the other hand, if you just allow it to be there, be like, ugh, it sucks. I woke up anxious, but what am I gonna do? It's gonna be like that little cloud that follows me during the day. If you do that sort of approach, you're gonna see that your anxiety doesn't rise as much. And there'll be points in the day where you act, where it's gone. like. It, it went away. You stopped paying attention to it and it went away. Yeah. Yep. And it, that also, you know, ties into, um, I use all these like idioms that I use is, you know, what you, what persists, um, well, um, no, I, I, what you fight continues to fight back. If you're, you know, if you're not fighting it, it's, it can't fight you back. So. Exactly. You know, we use that analogy almost like, um, we say like anxiety is like your younger brother that teases you. Like if, if you fall into the teasing, like, you know, he's, he calls you a nickname that you hate. If you start fighting him back, then that's, he's like, oh, that bugs you. Now you're screwed. I'm going to continue to give you that nickname. Uh, you'd rather just ignore it and be like, all right, it's annoying me. It's like, you know, having a stone in your shoe, but I'm just gonna keep walking. Then it, it, the anxiety just doesn't build. Exactly. Next one in regards to that, and I have fun. This is kind of where the fun comes into play. What I like to use, one of my favorite mentors, 
um, whenever I would get anxiety, would say this to me. She would say, Brandon, where are your feet? You know, when at first it kind of threw me off, I'm like, where are my feet? Well, my feet are right here. And she's like, no, where are your feet? And she goes, they're right there in line with you, right? And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, they are. And she goes, well, that is how in the moment, in the moment of anxiety, you want to look at it. Your feet aren't in front of you. Your feet aren't behind you. They're right there in line with you. You're right where you need to be. And for some reason, for me, that really helped with some of my anxiety levels because I'm like, okay, in this, it's okay. Like it's okay in this moment. So do you have any tricks or anything that you tell your patients, your clients in that moment to kind of help ease down the anxiety? So I think part of it is observing the thoughts and the feelings that come up, which is part of mindfulness. And like you said, it's just in this moment, I'm experiencing anxiety and that's okay. It's how it should be. Like, I'm not supposed to be controlling this. You know what I mean? It's, it's what it is. It's kind of like the weather it's raining and I can sit there on the window and like want the sun to come out but I can't control that. And we have this, you know, in our upbringing, we have this false notion that we can control our emotions, but we can't. We can control our behaviors, but we can't control our emotions. So if you're feeling anxious, it's just like you said, it's, it's part of just being, it's just part of that moment. So one thing that you can do if the anxiety is just becoming overwhelming and, and you feel like you can't accept it, it, you can't just allow it to be, you can try to, Observe five things that you see around you. Just kind of describe it like, you know, my computer, you know, my glass of water, etc. Four things that you feel, like the chair, you know, what the clothes you're wearing. Three things that you can hear, two things that you can smell, and one thing that you can taste. And what this helps you is to be mindful. It brings you back to the present moment and what's happening around you instead of you being like wrapped up in your own thoughts and your own anxiety. I love that. That is great. And I hope my listeners took note of that. You guys pay attention and take notes. That is fantastic. And I love that idea. Great. Thank you, Brandon. All right. So moving on, um, as I explained in the beginning of our of our conversation that I do have some, these are some of the hot topics, some of the hot questions that I get um, from both my men and my women. So keep in mind, I have a lot of single parents, um, both single dads, single moms, and that's going to lean into my next question. They get advice from me on the consulting and the coaching side, but I know that you are awesome in your field and I want to know your thoughts for the single parents out there that are just coming out of a long relationship with the other parent or maybe coming out of a divorce what are some of your insights tips tricks about healing very um, effectively coming out of a relationship that was long term where you are brokenhearted and you're trying to you know pull yourself out of that i think it's very important to seek out help so if you feel like the grief is overwhelming or just the anxiety surrounding all that it's important to know when you need to seek help from a professional, um, from a coach, from someone that can help you in, in those instances. Um, and you know, family and friends are great, but sometimes you also need professional help. And it doesn't mean that you're crazy. It doesn't mean, you know, that something's wrong with you. It's just, it's such a significant life event. Like the death, it's really like the death of someone. It's a loss and you're going to grieve it. It's just like if you, if you lost someone significant to you because it's the loss of the life that you thought you would have, the loss of dreams and aspirations that you had, 
um, and all those memories too with that person. Even if you feel like the divorce was right, it was the right move, you even decided to get the divorce, you're going to grieve it. There's going to be parts that are going to be very hard to navigate. So I think it's really important as parents to prioritize our mental health because we can't be good parents if we're not well ourselves. And it's not selfish to go and seek help and give yourself that time that you need. So if you need to, you know, get grandparents to help you with your children from time to time so that you can go, you know, heal. I think that's very, very important. Does it make you a bad parent? Actually, it makes you a better parent if you take care of yourself first. Yes, yes, I, I completely agree with you. Thank you so much for that because that kind of ties into the next, uh, really the next section of this is the dating world. You know, this the second part of this that I get a ton of questions on is, well, Brandon, you know, um, I started seeing somebody or when should I date? And I want to see if you're on the same page with me on this, Anna, is what I always recommend to my clients is six months to a year because even if they did not or or if they did want that marriage what i try and tell them is you are mourning the loss of somebody that is still alive you need to mourn that marriage and that relationship even if you wanted it even if you think you're ready you are not a hundred percent emotionally available for at least a minimum of six months because you have to reconnect with yourself what what do you think about that anna I think that's accurate, actually, because grief is approximately six months. It takes, and some people it takes longer. Um, and I do think that it's important that you give yourself that time, because or else what's going to end up happening is you're going to hurt the, the the person that you're in a relationship with, or you might hurt yourself. You're going to get into another toxic relationship, just like right off the bat, and it's going to create baggage. Every time we're in a toxic relationship, it creates baggage for the next. You're more insecure. You're more you know, your, your self-worth just goes down. So you, you want to give yourself that time to heal in order to be your best self for the next person so that that next relationship is really healthy. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the, the third part to this, uh, kind of ties into, and I'm sure you've heard me say it time and time again is about filling voids. Um, and this, this applies to, again, to both men and women. A lot of times, you are caught in the moment as humans we have needs we have desires and a lot of people will turn to physical um rather it's sex physical intimacy something to fulfill that dopamine to, to get some oxytocin rush and i always advise against filling the void it's great in the moment but you're going to slow down your journey when you are filling with band-aids and i wanted to know your opinion on that about turning to sex as an alternative for the pain yeah, no, terrible idea, uh, especially, and, and I know, you know, for women, and this is not because I think, you know, that women should not have, you know, liberal sex or, but the problem is our brains are a little different in the sense that we release a lot of oxytocin when we're having sex. And so whether you want it to happen or not, you create an attachment with whoever you're having sex with. And so the problem with that is that you think that you can just have random hookups and it's going to be fine, but it's not. Uh, and it's just going to create more damage to you, your self-worth. Uh, and like you said, you're just trading like this momentary satisfaction that you get. Or, And for some people, it's even actually feeling loved or desired for like a few seconds. So maybe you broke up with your boyfriend or you're going through a divorce and you feel like you need that validation or to feel wanted or loved and you go and hook up with someone because 
in that second you feel connected a little connected and, and maybe uh, wanted but this is not gonna help you in the long term um, the next day you're just gonna feel worse more empty um, and, and especially when that person doesn't reach out because it was just a hookup you're gonna feel worthless it's just it's it becomes a mess so I think I mean I am all for having a you know a healthy sex life and I don't think that sex is bad at all I think it's great it's part of our lives and I think it's an important part of a relationship however you do have to think about how you're approaching it is it healthy is it constructive or is it destructive yes yes thank you thank you I know some of those topics, you know, when we're discussing physical intimacy and sex, again, it's those things that everybody thinks about, but people are so afraid to confront. And yeah. that's that's another major part of this is I do get, hey, Brandon, well, you know, my, my husband's no longer desiring me or my wife is no longer desiring me. What are these reasons? Well, my answer is, well, I'm not psychic. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't tell you, but I can tell you some on a psychological level, which I want to see if you're going to agree with me, Anna, is a lot of times it's especially for women. It's the they're they, they've exhausted their opportunities, you know, that they're they've been given chance after chance after chance. And when a woman is done, she's done. And I think a lot of times that ties in with the desire for a man or a man um, physically letting himself go. So what would you say are some of those reasons um, for lack of desire or why, you know, couples are afraid of the healthy confrontation to say, you know, a babe, I, I, I'm just, I'm just not attracted anymore. We need to do this in our sex life. But instead of having that healthy confrontation, they'd rather cheat or have infidelity. What do you think is the driving force behind that? You know, Brendan, I think that this is such an important point. Um, and I recommend a book called The State of Affairs. It's really, really good. And it talks a lot about why people have affairs. And uh, like you said, I think a lot of it's just not being brave enough to broach those subjects. And, be, and like even telling your spouse, you know what? I've thought of another person because I feel like our sex life is not good. I, I haven't cheated, but I'm, because I think that if you're thinking about cheating, you should already tell your spouse and not, not because it's a bad thing you can't control the thoughts that come into your mind you can control what you do but if and this is something i tell clients all the time if you're attracted to someone you're married and you become attracted to someone else that's not cheating and i know it sounds controversial you can't control who you're attracted to but you can't control what you do the action um and i do think it's important to tell your spouse when you start feeling like you want to cheat because it opens up this conversation of, okay, maybe we need to mix it up in the bedroom or we need to do something different um, because, or else I'm going to go and cheat, you know? So I think that that's extremely important. I think part of it's also our upbringing. Again, I think it's the shame that we have around talking about sex and our sexual needs or our sexual desires. And we sometimes then feel like we need to go and seek, um, gratification with strangers instead of our, you know, significant other, because we're not brave enough to have those conversations. Right. Right. Yep. I, I, again, we're, we're on the same page and, you know, to touch base on that, uh, the way I kind of put it to some of my clients and, and people that I coach is you got to have an option and you got to pick your battles. And when I say that by no means, and I stress by no means, do I condone cheating? I don't condone that at all. But picking your battles is okay. 
Do I have the healthy confrontation with my spouse and potentially end my marriage? Or do I betray this person, go outside my marriage, not have the conversation with them and live with guilt the rest of my life and do something that I knew wasn't right? And a lot of people will choose the easy route, which is cheating rather than having that healthy confrontation. Because most of the time, if, if, if somebody's presented that to you, gosh, you know, it stings, it stings the ego. The ego gets stung a little bit. But would you rather have a little bit of a stung ego or lose your family life, everything that you have, you know? I know. And I think a lot of people, like you said, are they're just short-sighted. They only think about like how uncomfortable that conversation is going to be instead of thinking of like a lifetime of guilt. Um, if your children find out, you know, and all the other implications uh, that cheating has. So there are several reasons why men and women cheat. It's sometimes that they are their physical needs are not met, emotional needs are not met. Sometimes it's just the opportunity arises, you're drunk and you know, it happens. There are so many reasons why people do it, but I do think it's it's such an important thing to to talk about in your marriage uh, or in your relationship. Well, friends, that just about concludes episode three of Mr. Gratitude Presents Living with Gratitude. Gosh, what a fantastic episode. I hope you guys took notes. And if not, of course, you can you know play this back. Great information from Dr. Anna Treba. I really appreciate you being on the show. What I want to do is give you a couple minutes here to you know, kind of go over your practice, where you operate out of, if there are some local people that uh, are interested in seeing you, and kind of a little bit of your background. So let's go ahead and tell the fans where you're, where you're coming from. So I'm here uh, in Massachusetts. So if anybody um, is interested in uh, online therapy, I could do some of that. I specialize mostly in adults that suffer from anxiety, depression, and difficulties regulating their emotions um, that creates like interpersonal conflict. So I do a lot of that uh, sort of therapy. I specialize in cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, and so it's usually it's individual. So I don't do as much uh, couples or families. Okay. And where, where can some of my fans and followers find you? Um, what is your TikTok? What is your Instagram? What platforms are you on? So I am on TikTok and Instagram. Uh, on Instagram, I'm like mindfulmom.ec. And on TikTok, it's uh, at mindfultips. Awesome. Awesome. Well, once again, Dr. Anna Treba, I can't thank you enough for being on the show with me. And until next time, you guys, stay blessed.